Please remain standing as we read today's passages from 1 Samuel. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Lord, Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And they put the ark of the Lord on a cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wet wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriat-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, uh, again, we're grateful for this privilege to be here today to worship freely, to worship you who deserve our, our worship for all that you've done. And now we turn our thoughts toward your word again as uh, pastor uh, delivers your words to us. And I pray that we'll have attentive ears, that we'll listen carefully, that we'll learn, and more importantly, that we'll walk in your ways. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day from me as well. Uh, it's good to be together in God's house with God's people and to open the Word of God. If you're visiting with us this morning, we really try to focus on the Word of God taking it in, understanding it. Uh, we are studying right now the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. And one of the things that we've said from the beginning is that God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament, is given to us to reveal the glories of the gospel to us, uh, to teach us uh, about our need and God's provision of a Savior. 
and to draw us closer to Him. And today we have this kind of crazy story. Uh, It is one narrative uh, from uh, 1 Samuel 4 to 1 Samuel 6. And uh, if you notice the title of the sermon, kind of cleverly called Archaeology. Uh, it's the story of the ark. That's not my cleverness. That uh, goes to Dale Ralph Davis, uh, who is a, a good expositor and also uh, has a good wit about him in, in sort of observing some of these things. So we're following the story of the ark of the covenant of God. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in just a minute, but it gets taken captive by the Philistines. Is it Philistines or Philistines? Uh, do you guys have a preference? I'm going to say Philistines, I think, more often than not, but you can choose to dissent if you like. Um, uh, it gets captured. Uh, in the process of it being captured, it topples the, the god Dagon of the Philistines. Uh, it uh, causes great havoc in the Philistine towns of Gath and uh, Ekron and Ashdod. Uh, eventually, it gets sent back to Israel. Uh, through a, a series of tests, like on this cart with these cows that had just given birth and don't know if they'll actually go away from their calves or they'll just go straight down to Jerusalem, go straight down to, well, not to Jerusalem, but to Beth Shemesh, go straight down to Israel, or it was received with a lot of rejoicing, but then 70 men look on this thing uh, illicitly and they die, and it's just a, it's, it's It's a full story, and I certainly, you know, we've read a good bit of it, but I I commend it to you for your reading. But what does this story want us to see? Uh, A couple of things, you know, just in the flow of Samuel, remember uh, Samuel is the story that's connecting the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes uh, to the time of the monarchy when, when David will sit on the throne and God will make the promise to him that a descendant of David will sit on that throne forever and ever. But in between there, we, we've got to build up. We've got to build up to Israel dealing with their failure to worship Yahweh. We've been looking at that the last couple of weeks. Hophni, Phinehas, they've got hints of uh, their wrongdoing here in this particular passage. Uh, The role that Samuel plays, and Samuel is hardly mentioned in here other than verse 1, but this is important because uh, this is the story that establishes Samuel's word. Remember, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and Samuel said, Eli, your house is going to be judged. Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. Uh, And this is the story, then, of how that happens. And so we begin to understand that the Lord is with Samuel, and that the Lord is dealing with uh, his false shepherds in order to lead them to the true shepherd king, Uh, even David, and then even beyond David to the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the things that these chapters really sort of confront us with is the notion of who God is. Uh, Who is God? C.S. Lewis in his book, um, uh, A Grief Observed, as he's lost his wife, uh, Joy, 
And he's just wrestling through all of the emotions that go along with that. He's wrestling through how he, how he thinks about God. He says, you know, as I go through this, I'm realizing how important it is to have a right, uh, a right understanding of God, a right, um, a right dealing with him. He said, it's not that I am afraid that I'm going to conclude that there's no God after all, but, he said, what I, I'm, really, I'm really afraid of is that I will come to know God as he's really like and be deceived no longer. Uh, it, it's really a, a penetrating question for us, you know, like, are we open to that? Are we open to, to understanding God as he lays himself out here, as he uh, reveals himself in his word, and that we don't live deceived? Walter Brueggemann, who is uh, an Old Testament scholar, commentator, he says, the way that this narrative lays out for us today in 4 to 6 does not invite us to an explanation of the action, but rather to an awed silence before the one who is inexplicable, inscrutable, and finally irresistible. Now, this is one of the things about story, about narrative. You know, we could go through, there's lots of details here that, that we can point out, and I'll try to highlight some of the good ones along the way, but there's a lot that we're going to be brushing by. But part of what we really want to do is, is just come to this story, come to this narrative, this true story, uh, with an expectation that we are experiencing who Yahweh is uh, and allowing that to, to shape us, you know, like the, the song, mold us, you know, break us, mold us, melt us, uh, use us, uh, move us in that way. So five observations for you. Hopefully that doesn't mean that it is uh, two-fifths as long as a normal sermon uh, if we only have three points, but I have five observations for you this morning. Uh, the first is this. You know, when we come to this story, one of the first things that we're confronted with is the power of God and not just the power, what, what is the word that I use here? The strength of God. Not just the strength of God, but also the proper utilization of that strength in our life. So in the first few verses here, the Israelites, we recognize they're in this conflict with the Philistines. Uh, they're desperate. They've lost 4,000 people in the first volley. And they're like, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to prevail over the Philistines? And so they come together and they say, do you remember the ark? You know, this is something that in Israel's history has had a prominent role. They're perhaps remembering back to the Battle of Jericho when they brought out the ark and they marched around and they were blowing on the, the shofar, the, the ram's horns, and, and the walls came tumbling down. 
And they said, it was the ark, you know. And so then they were remembering the Jordan River when they came to the mighty Jordan and they couldn't get across. And so how did they move across? They said, well, well, they brought the ark and they stood in the middle of the Jordan and the waters parted and the Israelites were able to walk across on, on dry land. It must be the ark. So they send to Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas are with the ark. Now that's kind of a warning for us there because Hophni and Phinehas up to this point we know that everything they touch is corrupt. Uh, that they're not moving in the right direction. And the attitude that the Israelites have toward the ark is not one of reverence and fear but, but rather it's one of like a talisman. Lisa and I were driving, was it last night or Friday night? I can't remember. But we were driving down the road and this car passed us with the license plate that said rabbit foot on it. And I was like, that's interesting because the way that the, uh, the Israelites are treating the ark, it's, it's almost like a, a rabbit's foot, uh, this, this talisman that if we take it into battle with us, then we are going to have... The luck of the Irish or, you know, the, the, the luck of the Israelites on our side, God will fight for us. Rather than bowing to, and maybe you picked up in, I think it's 5 verse 4, uh, or I'm sorry, 4 verse 4, where it says, The people sent from Shiloh and brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned upon the uh, throned above the cherubim. You know, this is the majestic glory of God. They're looking more for something that can contain God and they can use and manipulate God. You know, one of the ways that, uh, um, you know, when we come to the scriptures, the scriptures, we want to read to understand them and who God is, but we also recognize that that's happening in reverse. They're reading and understanding us as well. And I think we find some commonality here with these Israelites. You know, oftentimes when we face circumstances that are going against us, we can fall into the trap of you know, how can I manipulate this circumstance? Taking one of God's good gifts, and the ark was a good gift to the Lord or to the people of Israel. God bound himself to it in a, in a very real way, and they were able to experience his presence and talk to him. Uh, that he did show forth his power in things like Jericho and uh, the Jordan River and all of those things. But to have the idea that God is somehow contained there and that we can use him if only we will do this. Like I said, it, it reads me and perhaps it reads you when we take God's good gifts. Uh, you know, I think about the, just the sacramentology that led into the thing that we call the Reformation. You know, there was this sense that if we only take the wafer, you know, if we only uh, take the wine, we therefore can control God's blessing to us. And, and we take the mystery out of these things, and, and we feel that 
almost God is in a, a point of obligation. You know, I've, I've done this thing. I've prayed. I've given this money. I've been to worship. And, and we're seeking to almost control God. Maybe you sense that uh, or you can see that in yourself. Recognize that, that God doesn't really play by those rules. You know, in this case, 30,000 Israelites. 30,000, that's a lot of people. 30,000 Israelites are destroyed uh, as they move the ark into battle in this way. Which leads, of course, to, you know, part in the second half of chapter 4, where we realize that Samuel's word has come true. Uh, The battle is lost. Hophni and Phinehas, uh, the sons of Eli, they, they die on the same day. And the ark is captured. The ark is brought into captivity into the land of uh, the Philistines, uh, particularly the city of Ashdod. What's going on here? How can this happen? And and how do we observe it? I I give for the second... the second note there is just the, the splendor or the, the glory of God. There's a play on words all throughout this, throughout this whole four to six. Uh, the, the word for glory in, in Hebrew has the same root as the, the word for weight or heaviness. So you've got kavod, kaved, it's, it's the same root. And, and here we see the, the glory of God, Ikavod, uh, Ichabod, you know, the glory of God that has departed, has gone into exile. And, and it's contrasting with Eli, who is heavy, you know, the hand of God in, in chapter 5 and 6 that was heavy on the Philistines. Uh, the glory of God so much in play in this chapter is taken into exile. One of the things that I I think is really interesting about this passage and worth taking note is is the person who sees and observes, who is able to, as it were, prophetically speak to the reality that's happening in Israel, is a most unexpected person. Actually, it's, it's the mother of this story here on Mother's Day. It's Phineas's wife who sees that the glory has departed. She gives birth to this child, names him Ichabod. Why, why is she surprising? Well, just stop and think a minute. Eli is like 98 at this time. So, how old are his sons? His sons are 50s, 60s probably. You know, how, how old is his wife? Well, she's childbearing age, you know, so we're, we're moving down the generations here. Is this his first wife? What was it like to be the wife of Phineas? You know, to walk in the marketplace and have the people acknowledge you, but also know that your husband is sleeping with other women at the tent of meeting. You know, what was it like for her to uh, experience that shame, experience the loss that she experienced all on this day when 
uh, her husband dies, uh, when her father-in-law dies, when the ark that symbolizes God's presence with his people is taken into captivity. I mean, it was enormous. I mean, this is a broken wounded person, so much so that when the midwives tell her, you're having a son, you know, which normally would, would bring joy to a mother, especially in those days, it, it, it does nothing. But she says, the glory has departed. His name shall be Ichabod. And I think part of what, I, you know, I was drawn to pay attention to is that oftentimes it is those people. Uh, it, is, it is the weak and the wounded and the vulnerable uh, who are able to see more clearly. This is part of the music, right, that we saw back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we said, Hannah's song. We, we just are going to encounter these themes over and over and over and over again. They're going to culminate with the, the song of Mary, the Magnificat. And, and it's this idea that the feeble will bind on strength. That the weak and the wounded are going to see more clearly than the strong and the powerful. And I wonder sometimes, you know, where do we go to really gain understanding? Are we looking at the people that have it all together? Are we looking at the people that have all the answers? Uh, or are we listening to those among us that uh, are struggling? That, that may be hurt and, and wounded and vulnerable, perhaps they see more clearly than some of the others. The story moves on. The ark is taken into captivity. It's taken to Ashdod. There's five cities. Uh, I don't know if we can name them all. Gath, Gaza, Ashdod, Ekron. One more. I uh, can't remember it right now. But these are the five cities of uh, the, the Philistines. Uh, they have five lords. We're going to see that a little bit later on as they bring this offering of five tumors and five rats uh, back to the Israelites. Uh, but it comes to a Ashdod. Ashdod, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're celebrating. Yes, we've conquered you know, our God Dagon is, is stronger, and, and so we're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into uh, before Dagon. But then you begin to see the actual supremacy of God. Uh, as, as it seems like in Israel, you know, the power misused, the glory, the splendor is gone. Surely this is the end. But God, in his mind, says, no, I've got them just where I want them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, they think that they have won, but they are about to see my display of power. And we see that the, this Dagon, this idol, the, the god of grain, that's what Dagon was. Uh, he had heavy investments in ag futures. He, he believed in all of these things, the god of grain which goes to show, you know, we, we can make gods of anything. 
You know, the Roman pantheon, we have the god of wine, we have the god of information, we have the uh, goddess of sex, we have the goddess of, of hearth and home, you know, all of these things. We, we can make a god, we can make an idol out of anything. But what we see here is that God topples those gods. I mean, quite literally here in chapter 5, Dagon, he's down. So they go in. Something must have happened in the night. You know, those Philistine boys were out doing what they shouldn't do uh, that night. So they set them back up. There are several sort of humorous things in chapter 5 as you read through them. You can tell the narrator is, is telling these uh, with a little bit of, um, of glee in his voice. Uh, but then the next morning, they come in and he is toppled again. And this time, his head and his hands are cut off, the symbols of his might and his power and his knowledge. And they're laying at the foot of the ark. And we begin to hear the music again, <laughs> you know, very literally, dun, 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 dun. I know that's Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> uh, I know we're talking about the ark, I know you're thinking Steven Spielberg, he didn't get it all right, but the theme music that we talked about in week one, you know, this theme music that comes back, and perhaps you picked that up when we were reading in 1 Samuel 2, uh, our call to confession and declaration of forgiveness, uh, there... Our Lord is a God of knowledge. You know, over and against the knowledge of Dagon, his head cannot even stand. Uh, the adversaries of the Lord, verse 10, shall be broken to pieces, quite literally, in this case. Our, our God is supreme. So, we learn two things here under this. You know, one is that the power of God over idols you know, which makes us ask the question, what are you worshiping? You know, what, what holds prominent place in your life? Perhaps it's not grain, but it might be wine, it might be sex, it might be power, it might be information or technology or hearth or home or any of these things that we make into idols. You know, recognize that they, they don't stand before the Lord. The Yahweh, this God of the Hebrews, He is the supreme God, and, and they will ultimately bow and worship Him because He, after all, is their Creator. The second thing, though, that we observe here, and this is where that, that theme music becomes almost deafening. The th second thing that we observe is that just when we think all is lost. <laughs> this is terrible. The ark has been taken captive. It's now in the hands of Philistines. Woe is us. No. Woe is the Philistines. Because when we think that all is lost, in the moment of absolute weakness, that's when we see the power of God. And we see this no more clearly than at the cross of Christ. You know, the time when Satan and all of his dominion and hosts thought they had triumphed over Christ on the cross, surely now we have put the Son of God to death. There he is, pinned up like a specimen between heaven and earth. But that is when you know, the, the deeper ways, the deeper power of God begins to work, and, and He 
puts to absolute rout our enemies, triumphing over them in the cross. This, this is the way of the gospel. This is why Hannah and Mary, you know, they talk about the humble being exalted, the exalted being brought low. Uh, this is the song, the unexpected ways, the reversals. God in captivity is still God on his throne. God on his throne still gives us that promise. And I know some of you need to hear this right now because you feel like all is lost. You know, whether it's in America or whether it's throughout the world and you feel like, you know, God's power, God's influence has waned. Well, nowhere was it lower than it was in that temple of Dagon and Ashdod. But yet, our God reigns. He is supreme. He is powerful. Two other observations for you as we bring this to the close. You know, one is just the severity of God. I've sort of laid this out for you in chapter 5 and chapter 6. We see all of these references, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11. Again in chapter 6, I think verse 5, where it talks about the hand of God being heavy. You know, there's that word again, that the hand of God was heavy against the people in Ashdod, against the people in Gaza. Uh, it's so, uh, so heavy that they keep sending the ark on. We don't want it. You take it. Uh, it comes to Gaza and then all of the, the tumors and the boils and the death and the Philistines begin to happen again. And, and so they say, we don't want it. Let's send it to Ekron. But it gets close to Ekron and they're like, mm-mm. It's not coming in here. We, we don't want this thing. So finally the politicians get out of the way and they decide to call the diviners. And the diviners say, like, if we really want to get rid of this, we need to send it back to Israel. Uh, we need to get some molds of tumors, which is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and then some rats or some mice and make them out of gold. Some have speculated that perhaps it was something like a bubonic plague that was, you know, the rats, the mice were God's means of exacting this judgment on the people uh, in the land of the Philistines. Uh, we don't know exactly, but somehow they decide they're going to send this back. So heavy was God's hand on them. And then we see once it, it gets back, because there's this tremendous thing with the carts where the cows just, you know, walk away from the calves. They do something so unnatural. Uh, and, and they bring this, this uh, ark back to Israel, demonstrating that it was Yahweh who was the one afflicting the Philistines. Um, when, when it gets back there, the Israelites immediately rejoice, uh, but then they, they somehow treat the ark uh, without the respect that it deserves. The ark, a couple of things about it. One, you could never look in this thing. Uh, that, that was out of line for anybody except the high priest. Uh, and even when it traveled, it was covered so that you couldn't even look at it. And, and somehow, when the ark gets back into Beth Shemesh, uh, 70 people look at it, whether they were, you know, flippant or we, we don't know exactly what the attitude is, but they are struck down and they die. 
the observation here, both for Philistia and for Israel, is that there, there is a severity to God. There, there is judgment. There, there is recompense that comes upon a people. And, and part of what the, the text is wanting us to, to wrestle with is just the truth of that. You know, sometimes we, we forget uh, that God is not our grandfather. Uh, I, I loved my grandfathers. Uh, but God does love us, but there is also a holiness to Him and a sanctity to Him that, that we, we need to approach with care. And we need to approach with, with reverence. And we need to remember that this is part of who he is. I, I think this is what Lewis is, is alluding to. You know, as we think about our life and we think about all of these things, do we really reckon with who God is? Because what's interesting is that both the Israelites and the Philistines they, they want to, when they see this part of God, they want to send him away. Uh, the, the Philistines, get him out of our city, get him out of our country. But then you notice the Israelites did the same thing. At the end of chapter 6, they, you know, after the, the people die, um, they say, you know, who can stand? before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Who can we send him to? And, and so they end up sending him to Kiriath-Jerim, and, and he, the ark is away from its, its home for 20 years until David eventually brings it back to Jerusalem. There's this desire to send away. And this is my final point. Uh, the sanctity of God, this, this holiness creates this question of who can stand. Who, who can stand before the holiness of God? And, and this is where the, the, the songs, the themes, you know, all of Scripture comes together and points us to one man. The one who came full of grace and truth the one in whom, in whom His face we perceive the very glory of God. That's how John introduces Jesus, the Word become flesh. Uh, he is the one in whose face we see the glory of God. You know, where is the glory? That's what uh, the wife of Phineas was, was asking. The glory has departed. But the glory has returned in the person of Jesus. And the answer to the question, who can stand, of course, is Jesus. He is the one. You know, uh, pure hands, uh, Psalm 15, and, and a clean heart. He is the one who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. He is worthy to open the scrolls. He is the one who is worthy. Why? Because he has borne the wrath of God. That those 70 men, uh, the 70 men of Beth Shemesh experienced the wrath of God that was poured out on the Philistines. Jesus is the one who has borne that in our place. And so the response uh, 
is not to do what the Philistines did or what the men of Israel did in Beth Shemesh to send him away, but the response is to draw close. The response is to embrace this one who has borne the wrath, to embrace this one who, who holds the glory of God, you know, to fall at our feet before Him, knowing that in the midst of all of this judgment, there is grace, because ultimately the judgment has fallen on Him, which has opened the way for us to know the intimate love of a holy God, our Father, uh, as we think about it. Here's how uh, one commentator finishes this off. He says, it's so easy to be wrapped up in the bloodiness of Israel's defeat, the tragedy of the ark's capture, in the blot on Yahweh's reputation, that one becomes blind to the fact that in the middle of all of this, Yahweh is clearly but quietly fulfilling a word he has spoken. Indeed, through, though in fulfilling this word, he acts in judgment, he nevertheless is acting in grace, for in his judgment he is removing the false shepherds who cause Israel to go astray, and he's preparing a way for the true shepherd, the true shepherd king, David, and his great ancestor who sits on his throne forever, that we might know him uh, as our true shepherd king. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for just the, the way that it comes to us. Lord, we're so grateful that you speak to us in, in songs, in poetry, in rhyme. Uh, we're grateful that you speak to us through epistles, uh, through very uh, didactic, propositional truth. But Lord, we are so grateful that you speak to us in story as well these narratives where you invite us to not simply examine every word, but to feel the effect and to feel the glory uh, that is in this story. So, Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts today and that we would respond to you as the, the true one who contains the glory, the true one uh, who displays the power in weakness, over our enemies once and for all. Lord, may we behold you there, our risen lamb, the, the perfect spotless righteousness, uh, and may we uh, find our hearts submitted to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.